0: I like what Gary said at the end there, it's all about Jesus, and I think at the end of today, uh, this evening, I really hope that that's what comes across, that it is all about Jesus, and we're going to be spending lots of time in the Old Testament today, but it's all about Jesus. Um, so I just want that to be really clear, um, but he, he wants me to talk a little bit about myself, which I'm quite good at, so I will take this time. Um, when I was a teenager, I was, I was raised in a semi-Christian home, which I won't go into, but um, I was encouraged to read the Bible as a teenager, and, and you'd, you'd pick up the Bible, and you'd turn to, I don't know, Matthew 16, and you'd read 10 verses, and you'd think, what on earth is going on? I, it didn't make any sense to me. And, uh, and so one day, I, I started dating uh, my now wife when I was uh, 16 years old, and I traveled um, up to Cumbria from London, which is where she lived, and I decided I'll take my Bible with me for that long train journey and I, I sat there and i read through most of the gospel of john on this train it started a lot of conversations with the people around me on the train which was very good but for me reading the gospel of john really just seeing how it progressed it's a story you know it, it's a beginning a middle and an end i think sometimes when we read the bible it's kind of like we're turning on a movie that we've never seen before and skipping to the middle of the movie watching a scene and thinking was that good Maybe, maybe it was, maybe that was the best acting you've ever seen but it won't make any sense and so I think that uh, for me and the, 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 journey, my, the start of my journey of reading the Bible was, was really just reading through some books and that started me on a journey of reading through book after book after book um, I think I wouldn't say I went particularly fast I think I officially finished the Bible by finishing Isaiah which I always struggled to finish a few years ago so it, and that was over eight years so I'm not saying I read, read the Bible every year but what I'm saying is I've got. hopefully I've got a good understanding of the Bible now I do understand um, when I pick up the Bible at a certain place in the Bible I know what the context is I know what's going on and I, so I, if, one thing I really want to encourage us all tonight uh, and myself again that actually when it is to know our Bibles is to know when someone says Lamentations you might actually know what that book is about before you've even picked it up or um, that you know that maybe there isn't a book of Josiah that doesn't exist um, or Hezekiah that there's not a book called that so, so just being familiar with our Bibles I, I really encourage you and I'm glad that we're doing these lectures because it hopefully gives us a chance to to know that a little bit more so we're going to spend lots of time in a few books today and I'm going to introduce those books so that you do understand the context um, but I just ask you as well to, to 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 understand and learn and and figure out that larger context Anyway, I've already spent a long time talking about something I wasn't going to talk about, so I need to move on. Um, there's a book called Storylines, which maps threads through the Bible. Um, I, I think I read this around 1718, and I loved that it talks about Jesus throughout the Bible. It talks about the, co- the, the idea of covenant throughout the Bible, the presence of God, the kingdom of God, salvation, worship. And it's, it's just a little book, and it's very easy to read. It was actually targeted at, at youth workers, at, sorry, at, uh, young, at youth um, written by these two guys in the top right, who run Soul Survivor, and uh, and that gives you an idea of the how there are threads throughout the Bible. And today we're looking at the uh, the thread of the the temple that goes right from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible. Um, if you disagree with me this evening about anything, that's great. I'm glad that you disagree with me. Please write it down and study the Word for yourself and learn. Um, I haven't got everything figured out, and I will tell you when I'm saying things tonight that are maybe a little bit. Not everyone agrees with what I think, and I'll try and give a balanced view uh, on a few things. Okay. Uh, firstly, firstly, I realised I haven't done the one thing that I wanted to do, which is show you a particular verse, which is somewhere in the middle. Okay, I'm going to have to do it from memory. Um, in John 1, uh, verse 14, it talks about um, the word of God coming and dwelling uh, on earth with us. And that word dwelling is actually uh, pitching a tent, as it were. So God came in the word and pitched a tent among us. And if you're going even more literally, it's actually tabernacling among us. This word tent is, very, is almost identical to the word tabernacle. Uh, which is which conjures up for the for the jews in the first century conjures up all these images of the tabernacle in the time of moses and so when we see you know you would probably just go right past john 1 verse 14 but when you read that and most versions don't say tabernacling because that's not really a word um it says he came and dwelt with us but but I want you to stop and we want to look at what the tabernacle was and what Jesus is doing here. So we're going to look at the tabernacle and before we move on to the temple um, because the tabernacle really was the precursor to the, to the temple and we'll see the connection between the two as we go on. So uh, Exodus uh, 25, uh, 8 and 9 says, uh, have, the, have the people, this is a command from God to Moses, says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. And if you read the whole of Exodus chapter 25, it has all these very specific rules about how to make the candlesticks and how to make the curtains and how to make all these very, very specific things. You had to be precise. And and similar to... to, um, what, uh, I forgot his name now, is it Mark? Uh, who spoke last week? I should know, Richard Harvey. Great. Um, similar to what he said last week, um, God's desire of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and into uh, the promised land was that he could dwell among them. And, uh, and here you see uh, God say, it has to be this way, it has to be through building this tabernacle so that uh, I can live among them. And it has to be exactly according to this pattern. Now, side note, some people think that the pattern of the tabernacle, the way the tabernacle was made, is, uh, is like a physical representation of the throne room of God. But I haven't looked into that enough to be sure about that myself, but you can, you can think that if you want. Um, and so it has to be very specific. But, but if you read the rest of Exodus, after this, this perfect plan was given, the Israelites go and build a golden calf, literally cow made of gold and start worshipping it they think that they can worship God through bowing down before a piece of gold and that's clearly not how God wants them to worship God he's told them here in Exodus 25 that actually I will live among them you need to do it through this tabernacle you need to do it through this way and there are all these requirements to fit into the tabernacle and so after they fail to do the tabernacle the right way. Um, and by wor- uh, after they fail by worshipping the golden calf, they then, in chapters 35 to 40 of Exodus, they do build that tabernacle, uh, and we then go on to this beautiful scene uh, on the next slide. It says, Exodus 40, verse 34 to 38 says, it's very odd if you haven't seen it before. Then the cloud, weird cloud, anyway, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, was over the tabernacle, tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. and so this glory of the Lord this cloud if you read earlier in Exodus it was up at the top of Mount Sinai but now this cloud has come down this glory cloud has come down and is now in this tabernacle but it sometimes leaves the tabernacle to guide them and take them in the directions that they need to go. So there are a few things we're getting about this tabernacle that it, it, the presence of God lives there, that, the, the, that God has used this tabernacle to dwell with his people and guide his people. So these are some of the features of the tabernacle, which is really important when we think about Jesus, which we'll continue on to. But what is glory? I want to talk about more about glory. We sometimes talk about the glory of you know, a sunrise or the glory of a man's strength or something like that, but these are fading, temporary things. Instead, the word in the Hebrew for for glory is much more heavy and tangible and solid. It's something that you can see and it's something that uh, is tangible. Um, And it's something they stood in awe of. They were in awe of this tangible glory cloud that they could see. Let's move on. So, we then, we have the tabernacle and then years later, I can't give you all the history, but years later, in one king's, uh, we see Solomon building this temple and they take the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was this, very, I can't even explain what it was. But basically, it represented there the deal, you could say, between God and the people of Israel. And that moved from this tabernacle, this tent, into this magnificent temple which Solomon built. And there are some points that I wanted to pull out uh, from just from 1 Kings 8. It says, it, 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 we see again uh, in 1 Kings 8 verse 10 when the priest withdrew from the holy place the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple so again the glory was in the tabernacle before it's in the temple now in verse 58 it says um, Solomon is praying uh, about God, uh, people in God and talking about may God turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him And keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. So there's a re-establishment of that covenant. We go on to verse 63. Um, It talks about the way way to a relationship with God. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord. 22,000 cattle. And 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. Can you imagine the massacre? (laughs) And the amount of blood... Uh, the amount of money that was given and spent to uh, to create this, to get this relationship up and running. Uh, verse 56 Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through this, his servant Moses. So it's a place of praise. This temple is a place of praise. Mm-hmm. Um, And then verse 44 to 45, it's a place where prayers will be answered, which you've got there. So you can read that if you'd like. It's a place where prayers will be answered. However, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, hundreds of years after Solomon built his temple, we can read, and I'm not going to read it for you now. If you want to, you can go and find that in Ezekiel 10 and 11. But he talks about the glory departing from this temple. Even though it was glorious, it was an amazing building, it was beautiful, the glory left. And Ezekiel saw it in his visions. Quickly, afterwards, say quickly, maybe years afterwards, um, the whole temple itself was completely destroyed. So this be- beautiful, glorious temple, the house of God, the thing that represented the dwelling of God with the people of Israel has left. The place where the covenant was kept has, has collapsed. The way to a relationship with God has collapsed. There's no place to praise anymore. And so, as you'd expect, oh, I should say, why, why is the glory departed? I should be very specific about this. The reason why the glory departed was because they didn't keep the covenant. They didn't keep, they weren't, the Israelites didn't maintain the holiness and the standards that they were supposed to keep to maintain that relationship with their God. They didn't maintain those standards. They went into exile. Their country was destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. After this, there's no record of them having the Ark of the Covenant anymore. No one knows where that is. There's a theory it's in Ethiopia, but that's a different conspiracy theory, which we won't look into. But after this, after the temple was destroyed, there was lots of expectation. And you see this in Ezekiel. You see it be destroyed at the beginning. Um, And then there's all this expectation of a new David, a new king, a new Messiah, who was able to give new hearts and new life. There's talk in Ezekiel 37 of new humans and new creation. It's all very beautiful. In, In chapters 38 and 39, you hear about... Um, evil being destroyed once and for all and then right at the end of Ezekiel you hear about this new temple uh, in a a new city it's not necessarily Jerusalem but it's a new temple it's better than Solomons there's a throne in it Uh, and there are different theories and this is where i put a little bit of a different theory up some people think there's going to be an actual new temple Built in Israel that it's going to be part of the end times and part of before Jesus comes back. I respect that opinion and I'm not here to argue with that. But others think and this is what I agree with more that um that God's presence and uh, uh, will return with the messianic kingdom, but not as a literal building necessarily. And you can see where I'm going, probably with what I think is the fulfillment of this beautiful imagery in chapters 40 to 46. I just want to read out this promise in Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 to 26. It says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So there was an anticipation. The Israelites had failed, but there was this promise of a new heart. And a new spirit, and in hope of a new temple, whatever that might look like. So, in verse in chapter forty three of Ezekiel, the glory returns to the, the, the temple that he's kind of made, uh, he's described. And in, ver- in chapter forty seven, you, you you read about uh, this life giving river of healing that pours out from the temple and spreads to the nations. And it, it's weird; it turns the Dead Sea into a, a living sea. Uh, that was the the imagery that's used um but it's so it's amazing seeing this this little stream that starts and it brings life to everything around it and so this is this is what this new temple is supposed to be like and the city is described i think it's the last verse of ezekiel it says the name of the city where this temple is is called the lord is there so the lord is in this city he's in this temple so that's the anticipation There's also the anticipation, I'll just quickly read this, there's also the anticipation that this new temple would be a hope for the nations. It says in Isaiah 2, verse 2 to 3, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God there he will teach us his ways and we will look we will walk in his paths for the lord's teaching will go out from zion his word will go out from jerusalem and i've given a few extra verses there at the bottom which uh, which say very similar things about this a temple really being a place where the whole world would come to and be a hope for the whole world so lots of anticipation but there was a second temple built by a uh, I've written Nehemiah here, but I think Ezra built it. Anyway, it's in Ezra that it's built. And uh, and you can read how it's dedicated in Ezra 6. And most people think that in Ezra you, you read about it being an amazing work of God, that they've come out, that the Israelites who were exiled in Babylon have come back out. There's a lot of parallels with the Exodus story. So just like the Israelites had come out of Egypt and gone to the Promised Land, they'd, they'd now, years later, they'd come out of uh, uh, basically almost being slaves in, in Babylon, and they come back to the land of Israel. And so they thought, we'll build a temple just like we did before, and, uh, and we'll reestablish that covenant. But uh, the thing that's missing is that there is no uh, glory cloud in this. There's no evidence that, that God ever returned and dwelt among his people in, in, in Ezra. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there's lots of the bad things. If you read the end of, end of one of them, either Ezra or Nehemiah, um, there's a lot of, uh, it describes either Ezra or Nehemiah pulling out the hair of the people of Israel because he was so angry that they were still sinning, that that covenant hadn't been reestablished. Uh, there's a huge, it, it, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it doesn't sit right. It's almost like they didn't do it right this time. They did it right in Solomon's day, but now with Ezra and Nehemiah, the, God hasn't come back. The, we have issues with proper sacrifices. And there are prophets from that day, Malachi I've written here, um, in, chapters one, in chapters 1 and 2 are talking about, how, even though you've got this new temple, proper sacrifices aren't happening, and, we ha- and, and the priests are misbehaving and am- are immoral. There are issues with this new temple. It, do- it just doesn't satisfy. It doesn't live up to the glorious expectations uh, from people like Ezekiel. So the temple, I've described it in many ways, and I just wanted to really highlight these six things. I've said the temple, or the tabernacle as well, but the temple is the place where glory dwells. It's the, ta- the place where you can see and sense the tangible presence of God. It's also the place of worship, it's a place of prayer, a place of holiness, and a place where a new river of life will flow out. Um, A place of where people from every nation will come to seek God. So, we've gone through the Old Testament. Now we get on to Jesus. Jesus said uh, in John chapter 2 verse 19, he said, All right. I imagine him having a cockney accent when he says, all right, all right. Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's saying this in the context of, uh, of going into the temple, creating a, a whip and hitting people, and turning over tables and getting them to go out of the temple. He, he's passionate about the temple and how it's being misused. Very similar to actually what Nehemiah and Ezra were like uh, when they were disappointed with the temple. Um, and, uh, and, but what I really want to focus on here is in what way Jesus, uh, what Jesus means when he says, I will raise it up. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I mean, this is a clear, uh, ind- uh pointing forward to his, uh, death and resurrection. When he died, uh, it was, he was destroyed and then three days later he was raised back to life. And so there's kind of a metaphor here being used. He's kind of applying the temple to himself. And you could ask, you know, what's, what's going on? Very curious. But then we remember just the chapter before in John 1 verse 14, he, he used the analogy of, um, of tabernacling that, the, that John, the author of John, uh, John himself, um, was talking about Jesus, got Jesus tabernacling and, and bringing glory, if you read John 1, there's lots of references of glory, and I wish I had them right in front of me so I could quote exactly, but, um, but Jesus brought the glory of God uh, into the world, and so I have it right here, John 1, 1.14, we have seen his glory, and then John also wrote a letter in 1 John 1, verse 1, he says, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. So what I really want to hold on to here is that when you see Jesus, and when they saw Jesus, they weren't just looking at a man, but they were looking at uh, the same tangible presence that Moses um, could not uh, be in the same presence as back in, uh, in in the in the days of the Exodus, um, and yet now it's coming and it's walking among, amongst us. It was walking amongst the uh, the ancient Jews in the first century. Um, So the glory is no longer in a place, it's actually in a person. So there's this transfer that's happened here. It's very, very curious, very strange. Um, So we we keep going on to see if there's any more things, particularly in the Gospel of John about Jesus uh, fulfilling the role of this tabernacle. So we see here, I've kept the same verse at the top of all of these, so just to kind of illustrate uh, this fact that Jesus pairs himself with the temple. It says in John 1, 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In, one, uh, in just John 8, verse 12, not, not the letter, but the book, the gospel. I am the light of the world, he said. And so we remember when that glory cloud rose above from the tabernacle and it went ahead of them. And the, the, ancient, uh, the ancient Hebrews were following this light um, that directed where they should go. And so Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he's portrayed as the, the light that we follow. We don't follow a temple. We don't even follow a glory cloud, but we follow a uh, Jesus. He is our light. He is the light of the world. We go on again. John 1, verse 29 to 30. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So... I really just wanted to emphasize that Jesus is the one we follow. We don't travel to a temple anymore. We don't even travel to a, a church, but we travel to Jesus. We seek out Jesus. We follow Jesus. Um, and the person who's saying this, it's John the Baptist in John 1, who's saying, uh, look, the Lamb of God, and John the Baptist's disciples leave him and start following Jesus. I always think it's amazing that John the Baptist has these disciples, but he's quite happy for them to go off and follow Jesus because he knows who Jesus is and he knows Jesus is far greater. So I think a little bit of a practical thing you know we don't follow, you don't follow Gary and you don't follow me you don't follow the all nations people but you do follow Jesus. You don't follow a place I, you you don't go on necessarily go on a pilgrimage to seek God because Jesus is a uh, it's in Jesus that's where the presence of God is. Um, where do we worship? John 4, verse 21 to 24, in uh, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, he says to her, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. True worshippers will follow the Father, will worship the Father, sorry, in spirit and truth. John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3, verse 5, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. And the famous uh, declaration by Thomas at the end of John 20, once, uh, when, when Thomas put his fingers in Jesus' side and hands, uh, he, he, he exclaims, uh, my Lord and my God. He ends up worshipping Jesus at the end of this book. Um, we, see him, we see Jesus describe himself as the truth. We say that you need the Spirit, and we see uh, Thomas uh, worshipping Jesus. Not the temple, not not God through the temple or anything else, but worshipping Jesus. Um, John 14, verse 13 to 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So you see, you see that word glory again. I'm not going to go too far into that. But I wanted to really emphasize the fact that it's actually in Jesus' name that we pray. It's not in at the temple. It's not we go to a temple and we know our prayers will be answered there. I mean, it's a beautiful story, isn't it? When Hannah, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Yeah, 1 Samuel. Um, Hannah is praying uh, to, uh, to God to give her a child because she can't have children and, uh, and God grants her request. And that was at the site of of that was the tabernacle I believe and uh, so she had to go to that place and she traveled quite a long way to get there but here we, we pray things in Jesus name through Jesus Jesus is where we get we can pray I've got a quote here from 1 John uh, chapter 5 verse 14 to 15 it says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him so again, we can have confidence in our prayers through Christ. Um, John 20, verse 19 to 23. So this is now, I need to set the scene, because so, there's a lot in this, uh, these verses that I do want to talk about. So we talked about how in the Old Testament, there was lots of rules and regulations. To the, tem- the tabernacle had to be perfect. The priest had to be perfect. Everything had to be Perfect. And so, uh, and we saw earlier, I mean the top verse there says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so it sounds like Jesus, by his death and resurrection, rebuilt a temple. And so we should be very interested then in what we read about Jesus after this temple has been rebuilt in John 20, verse 19 to 23. He comes to his disciples, he says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now these disciples, I mean, in my opinion, didn't really deserve peace. They, they, they scattered the moment Jesus was arrested they hadn't been around him they, and they certainly haven't done all these rules and regulations to, to be worthy of the tabernacle they haven't purified themselves they haven't done all the things that they were supposed to do and yet Jesus gives them peace here and he said this he showed them his hands and side hands the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord so they, they, they received the peace they see the sacrifice and they're overjoyed Again, Jesus said, so he's emphasizing this: "Peace be with you." This is how we know it's not just a greeting, because he, he says it twice. "Peace be with you," he says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." So he gives the Holy Spirit. Now he he he, he shares God with them. The Holy Spirit is God, so he's giving them God tangibly giving them God. In in John 17, I haven't got it anywhere in the notes, but in John 17, in in what we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays uh, for the disciples to have his glory, to share in his glory. And here we see Jesus, post-resurrection, after the resurrection, giving the Holy Spirit. He's sending them, he's giving them the Holy Spirit, and it says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this is a very controversial quote, and I'm not going to try and deal with that. But what I really want to emphasize here is the fact that he's saying, just is it not so striking how easily for- he can forgive? Because of the resurrection, because of this release of um, uh, the fact that these rules and regulations don't need to be kept anymore, that Jesus has done it on the cross. He's rebuilt this temple, and he's saying that anyone can come in. He's saying that... Uh, you know, you don't have to do all these things, all these atoning works, all these sacrifices to be forgiven. But now, if, if you forgive anyone's sins, the sins are forgiven. It's much more of an open door, much more of an open door to Jesus. And that is where we find our forgiveness. We don't find our forgiveness through sacrifices, through penance, through all these different, be- through begging. We just come to Jesus and he will forgive our sins. So know your relationship with God, know the peace of God, know the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life and know that you are forgiven. It says in John 14 verse 6 that no one can come to the Father except through me. He makes it so clear that through Jesus is how we get to God or how we come to the Father. Um, I had a quote but I'm looking at the time and I will not use it. Um, Getting towards the end now. John 2: verse 15. So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He had a passion for the temple. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be uh, a place of holiness, and he wasn't happy with the way it was being treated. And then he says, shortly after that, and above that, you see that he says, "I." He says, "If you destroy the temple." Which they did. They destroyed his life. And in three days I will raise up again. He rose himself back to life. But he's perfect. He says in John 19 verse 4. And there are other verses I could have used to, to uh, substantiate this. Uh, that once more it says. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews. Gathered there. Look I'm bringing him out to you to let you know. That I find no basis for a charge against him. To Pilate Jesus was not guilty. He was innocent. And they killed him anyway. So I just want to emphasize that Jesus... We talked about it last week, that Jesus kept the law. And I do believe Jesus kept the law. Um, and he was, he was perfect. And he was a, and the reason why he was perfect and holy this way, the reason why there was no charge against him, there was no basis for a charge against him, was, because, uh, was so that he could be our perfect substitute. And I've got a verse here, one of my favorite verses, from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he, he was the once-for-all sacrifice. He's the once-for-all substitute. We can now come to God. Now, uh, do you remember I talked about the water that flowed, the, the anticipation for that uh, temple in Ezekiel where there would be a stream that would flow out of uh, Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's temple and, uh, and life would come. Through that, and so in John 4 verse 13 to 14, it says, "Everyone who drinks this water, this is the living water, will be thirst. Oh, sorry, no, this water being just this well that they were at. um, If they drink that water, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them, I give them, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life." John 7 verse 38 says, the one believing in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And at Jesus' crucifixion, uh, there's lots of debate about what this means. But it says that uh, a soldier pierced Jesus' side, it's probably to make sure he was dead, and blood and water flowed out. Now, you'd expect blood, obviously, but you wouldn't expect water. To flow out of someone's side and so some people have tried to scientifically explain that maybe you've heard that but other people point to this idea that actually uh, there was a a water that will bring life flowing out of Jesus Um, so I've written here come to Jesus for the water of life paid for at the cross at the moment of his glory one of the key things about John the gospel of John is it says that Jesus was glorified on the cross so we think of him as being glorified when he rose again victoriously but the, the the moment that Jesus showed the most glory, if that's possible to have degrees of, um, the most glory was at the cross and on the cross when he died for, for you and for me and to give us this life um, and to let the water flow out of him. Um, and so I believe, uh, as I'm sure you've picked up, that uh, Jesus at least somewhat fulfills this anticipation for a new temple that from him, uh, all the nations will be blessed and from him and, and we've seen that I mean we're not all we're not in Israel today we're not all Jews who have just converted to, to, to believing in Jesus we, we are from England you know it, it's unbelievable really that's Christianity all over the world and so we've seen Jesus become the hope for the nations from all around the world and, uh, and we've seen the water of life flow out of Jesus' side. we've seen the glory of God in Jesus we've seen him as the source of our prayer this is me uh, substantiating the idea that Jesus is uh, hope for the nations. Famous verses, John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, world, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. John 7, verse 38, for God so loved the wo-. that's not John 7, verse 38, John three sixteen, 16, it should be, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So Jesus came for the world, not just Israel. So again, I just want to go through it. Jesus, the glory of God. There are lots of other verses I could have used to substantiate my points tonight. I actually, you probably noticed, I really tried to use the Gospel of John only, but there are loads of other places I would go to talk about Jesus being the glory of God. He is the establisher of a better covenant. I recommend you read Hebrews if you haven't studied that. He is the better covenant. He brings the better covenant. He is the place of worship, as we've seen. Through him we pray. He is the holy one, through, through, I should add, through whom we find our holiness. And he is the spring of life, the wellspring of life. And he is the hope for the nations. So that's uh, everything I have. I uh, will close in prayer, I think, is the best thing to do. And then I'll just leave, and maybe talk about just a few resources that I do recommend. Lord God, we thank you that you showed us god's glory jesus we thank you that you showed us god's glory that when we see you we and when we experience your goodness and your love in our lives that we are experiencing the tangible presence of god lord god and we thank you that we aren't stuck in an old covenant of rules and regulations lord god but that we are in a better covenant lord god one that has been paid for by your blood lord god your innocent blood and we thank you that we come and worship through you, that you accept our praise, uh, not because of anything we've done, but because of who you are, Jesus. We thank you that, uh, that we pray through you according to your will, Lord God. We thank you that you've shown us your will and desire for our lives. Lord God, we thank you that you are perfect and holy. Lord God, that you showed us what it's like to overcome temptation, that we could follow after you. And Lord God, we thank you that you are the wellspring of life, Lord God, that it's through her hungering hungering and thirsting after you, Lord God, that we will be satisfied, Lord God. And I thank you that you are the hope for the nations. You are the name above every name, Lord God. That all nations from all over the world, they just need to know you and know your work on the cross. And I pray for all the people here, Lord God. I thank you that they've come to hear Uh, More about your word and the Bible and the way you've done things Lord God and I just pray that they would that you would satisfy their hunger and thirst Lord God that you would be there all in all that they would see you as God Jesus and they would know the peace and the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness that comes through you yeah we are we ask that we would experience your glory and your goodness in our life and be with us, Jesus, as you promised. Amen. Amen. So I've just written here some recommended resources. If you haven't got one, and I know some of you will, but if you haven't got one, a really good study Bible. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time looking at my study Bible, and when I don't understand something, I read the notes at the bottom. And so sometimes I spend just as much time reading the Bible as I do the notes at the bottom of the page. And at the beginning of every single book in my study Bible, it has a setting, and it has the context, and it has the literary features, and it has all these things, and, I, and the maps and things. I love maps. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, and that's, it's there, they're there to help you grow. Otherwise, you'd have to have one book over here, and one book over here, and one book over here. But a study Bible kind of brings it all together. So I do recommend you get a good study Bible. Um, And if you're interested in a bit more of an academic source about how Jesus is the temple, or Jesus fulfilled the role of the temple, uh, there's this book that I uh, read for my studies called Jesus and the Temple by Nicholas Perrin. I I will say I wouldn't consider him evangelical, but most of what he said seemed really good and solid to me. I think non-evangelicals can have good thoughts about the Bible too. So, so, you know, read it, but just remember where he's coming from. Um, But I do recommend it, and I don't think it's too much. And if you want something a little bit more introductory, then the book I recommended at the beginning, Storylines by Mike Pitavarci and Andy Croft, is also good. And I'll just leave this up on the screen. And if you want prayer for anything, then by all means, talk, talk to me, talk to Gary. Oh, we're going to have a Q&A time, aren't we? Q&A.